0: Hello and welcome to the From the Clubhouse podcast. I am Tom Irwin and I'm joined by my regular co-host, Steve Carroll. All right, Steve?
1: Good morning, Tom.
0: It's good, isn't it? We're sort of back with regularity.
1: I know. I no longer have to uh schedule my diary exclusively around your whereabouts anymore. It's great. I know, it's, it's sort of
0: dunno, like a sort of a married couple. Like last week we were sort of sort of feeling our way way back in, weren't we? After One of us had been on a long work trip.
1: Absolutely. Um, We have had a scattered. We we have been scattered for a few weeks, haven't we? We've been scattered all over the kingdoms, and we've been scattered all over our podcasts as well. But we are back. Uh,
0: It's a beautiful, beautiful sunny day. It's
1: a great day for a lesson, isn't
0: it? It's a great day for a lesson. You have been playing a bit of golf, haven't you? You've been uh, up at Close House.
1: I have. I'm glad that you noticed that. Um, home of the international series event uh, last month. I have a very emotional attachment to Close House, which goes back 30 years um, when I was a student at Newcastle University and the Philly course at Close House was the university course. So I love it up there. Did you go
0: to like a, did you, did you go to like a proper sort of actual university, not like a pretend one? I went one?
1: to a red brick one, yeah. Jesus. I know. Look what's happened to me as well.
0: What A-levels did you do? Money
1: well spent. I did uh, history, uh, I did English lit and language, and I did general studies at A-level. That's.
0: I think that might be exactly what I did. That's exactly what I did. No, I did history, English lit, geography, and general studies. And,
1: and the good thing was, Tom, I did quite well. So I got to go to a proper university, as you term it.
0: <laughs> I did terribly, but somehow blagged my way into Leeds, which is also a proper university. Anyway, we digress significantly. I was I was up at close house for the uh, international series qualifier thing in the summer. It's good, yeah, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I, I just, uh, can I say this on the podcast? Yeah, I can. I am going to return there, hopefully. Um, it is like everything I, it's everything I like in a golf club. It's modern. It's got a couple of courses, so there's choice. Um, it's got a, Exceptional clubhouse, a really friendly vibe. It's got great practice facilities. The academy there is absolutely unbelievable. The only issue for me is it's ninety-four miles from my house.
0: Ninety-four miles, and you're thinking of this becoming one of your many and varied home clubs?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've been there before as a country member, so it's not. It, it would not be um, a blast to to return. But I have um, I have friends who live up there. Um, long old standing friends as well um it's quite hard to be playing every week Are you playing this weekend no so that, that you see, nice. yes you see that's the thing tom I, I don't really play every weekend anymore so um i don't pop out on a wednesday night for nine holes i haven't done that for a long time because i've got obviously a young a young child um i have a football season ticket i'm a middlesbrough season ticket holder so saturdays one in two saturdays is essentially out so i, I don't I don't need to be going up there every week.
0: can't do everything, can you, Steve? No,
1: you've got to, you've got, but you've, I've learned, Tom, as someone who used to be obsessed about nothing but golf, as you well know, um, I've learned in, as I approach, is it my sixth decade when I turn 50? It probably is, Jesus. Um, yeah. As I approached my half century, I've learned to have some balance in my life, finally, and many and varied interests.
0: Yeah. See, I've sort of decided, I'm I'm like, well, I've gone through the bit of trying as hard as I can at this stuff, and I am now definitely living my life voyeuristically through my children, 100%. I don't think I'm even ashamed to say it. So I'm now just sort of trying to make sure they just try as absolutely as hard as they possibly can at all sports and uh, try and achieve some things that I didn't. So I'll definitely be on the golf course this weekend, but it's likely to be, the 12 holer at rudin at at wyke with uh, with mike with my kid i thought you i um, thought you
1: were trying to sort of turn one into the new cristiano ronaldo and another into sort of johnny wilkinson It is a bit of that
0: yeah bit of that um anyway so it's match play season isn't it
1: well we're coming. it is
0: yeah it's a beautiful sunny friday morning the solheim cup is in full swing and then we bounce straight into next week's Ryder Cup. Will you be watching? Are you watching?
1: I am watching. Yes. Um I uh, annoyingly I found, I found myself really annoyed about this that I mistook the times. I forgot that we're an hour forward in Spain. So I woke up this morning thinking I'd make first tea time and they were halfway down the third the first group. This irritated me intensely, far more than I thought it was going to. Um, but yeah, I'm going I'm, I'm watching the right, I'm watching the Solheim Cup right now and I'll Get stuck into the Ryder Cup next week. One of our guys, Matt Chivers, is going to the Ryder Cup, isn't he? He's very excited about it. His, his is. journey his journey's brilliant. Have you heard about it? No. So obviously, like Rome's a no-go. Um in terms of flights. They're just horrifically expensive. So he's so this is the dedication, right? Of one man, one man to go and watch the Ryder Cup. He's flying into Milan. So he's flying into Milan. He's then getting a train from Milan to Rome. His Airbnb is he showed me on a map. It appears to be nowhere near Rome. Um, so he then has to find a way to his Airbnb, whether, whether that's obviously through like an Uber or more likely I think through public transport. So he's gonna have to get a bus. And then the the only place he's it seems he's been able to get is like not really near the golf course. And he, he then has to go back Toward towards Rome from his Airbnb to then get the shuttle bus to get to the golf course, which I think I don't know if you've been, but apparently it's like single track road in, single track road out.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So I mean, I said to him, um, I said to him yesterday, how are you going to make the first tea time on Friday? How are you going to get there for first tea time? And he just looked at me. and He just went, I don't know. <laughs> have you have have you done the first tea? I have yeah, at Glen Eagles. I did it in Glen Eagles on, in 2014. I didn't get anywhere near the grandstand. I did get there really early. You want you want to see some more commitment to the Ryder Cup, Tom? I had food poisoning in 2014. The day before the Ryder Cup, I drove up to Glen Eagles with food poisoning. This was just as a fan. Yeah, right? this, this was. was, yeah, you this went, was yeah, yeah, this was as a fan. Yeah, I've got I've got a rocky oh. road with the Ryder Cup, you know. In 2010, I went to Wales on the Friday. I didn't. I saw like a blurry shot of Phil Mickelson in the distance before it got called off for rain. Didn't see a single shot that day. Saw a lot of the bar. Didn't see a single shot. We left the course. I think it was something about quarter to five. Uh, groundsman said to us, "No chance of getting any, any, any play in here." Greenkeeper said, "No chance." As Soon as we got out of the, uh, out of the car park. Oh, it'll be play back on in half an hour. And then four years later, basically the day before the Ryder Cup, I went and had food poisoning. I just thought, no, nah, not again. So I drove up to Glen Eagles with food poisoning, stopping basically every half an hour on the road going up. And so I did see, uh, yeah, I did see the the, the first the first tee shot. And it's an incredible experience, isn't it?
0: So I, I did that in 2014 at Glen Eagles as well. We had a very stupid thing where we stayed at Carnoustie, if you can imagine that.
1: That's yeah, that's kind of, you're, you're beating Matt Chivers for not being anywhere near the Ryder Cup venue. Well,
0: then we <laughs> we drove to Stirling uh, at like 4am, got the first media bus from Stirling into Octorado or Glen Eagles, wherever it dropped you off. And we, we did do the first year I think we might have even done it every morning, but obviously that first morning is pretty special, it's pretty tense atmosphere, totally ruined by the guardians of the Ryder Cup, obviously. But other than that, a very sort of intense kind of uh, sporting experience is good. Um, so, this is going to be it's quite a big thing, isn't it? Because America have not won on European soil since
1: 1993, 30 years. All oh, right. Tom Watson's team squeaked it 15 13 at the Belfry in 1993. I think the game came.
0: See, that is going back some distance. Well, I was it?
1: a teenager. So that, was a, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that is, was a long time ago.
0: That is basically me setting out in golf nineteen ninety-three. In fact, I might even have been to that Ryder Cup. Was that Fred Couples?
1: Yeah, I think Davis Love Costatina Rocker was like the pivotal match.
0: Yeah, yeah. So my my the thing that sort of got me hooked on golf, I guess, is uh, keyword nineteen ninety one. Yeah. Yeah. And I did go to that we went on that um to that uh Ride a cup with school we had a chemistry teacher he was like well into his golf and he took what us what an
1: amazing school trip
0: well it wasn't really a school trip this guy was a bit of a nutter we went on golf trips with him he let me drive his mini around scotland when i was like 16 with no license he's like you'll be fine <laughs> i better not mention his name no, I, don't I really would he used to smoke like a chimney He was a brilliant footballer he was quite a good golfer actually uh, I, and I've got sort of vivid memories of uh, standing on the behind the tenth green at the Belfry, watching Fred Couples in the practice round just miss consecutive five footers. Um It's funny what sticks with you, isn't it?
1: Yeah, what a what Davis
0: Love. I can remember Davis Love playing though. that Ryder Cup do? as well. Anyway, it's a long time ago, Steve. Right. Uh, this podcast is, as ever, brought to you by TaylorMade, our very kind, very generous sponsors. They're in the middle of a new iron launch. They've got P790 out. Have you seen those? I
1: haven't. I mean, I thought their previous iteration was quite a sexy golf club. Unfortunately, I'm not good enough to hit them.
0: They've got, um they are, they're, 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 they're players' distance line, right? So they're kind of like very thin top line. They have the sort of width of a blade, but they're sort of very, very playable Uh launch-like rockets. And these have got progressive lofts, so that's their sort of big step forward is that the the short irons are um, spin a bit more, launch a bit higher than perhaps previously. Um, anyway, they're out now. Um, so you'll see a lot of a lot of that, I think a lot of noise about that through the Ryder Cup, probably in some players' bags. Um, so I've got a stat for you. See if you can get this, right? So since America last won on European soil in 1993, how many tailor-made drivers do you think there have been?
1: Hmm. Hmm. That's a tricky one. I sort of don't want to go too high for fear of like offending our, <laughs> offending our benefactors. <laughs> yeah, there's been 112, Tom. Um, I don't think it's offensive. I mean,
0: like, it's just a fact. It's just like what's happened.
1: I'm going to say 30 years. They've had some proper drivers out since then as well, some real like. Some real like head turners, haven't they? Like Aero Burner and some of the R drivers. I'm going to say, yeah. I'm going to M series. Yeah. And, well, God, the M2. What a great club that was, that first iteration of the M2. Some of the best drivers I've yeah. ever played. Um, I'm going to go with, let's say, an average of one to two a year.
0: We've done this before. When we do quizzes, I've told you before, thinking time's not good radio.
1: <laughs> all right, all right, all right. 44. 44? It's like,
0: it's like you're trying to guess how many people your missus has slept with. It's like you get you deliberately go low. How many people do you think I've slept with, dear? I don't want to go too high. Uh, two? <laughs> I'm staying well out of that conversation. 44. So, hang on. So, you think that in 30 years, TaylorMade have launched sort of 1.5, 1.3 drivers per year?
1: Well, I, I think there'll be more in the last sort of 10 to 15 years. But um, I mean, we're going back like 1993. We're going back to like the, towards the original, like first aluminium type. Do you remember? I mean, they always yeah, looked, yeah. they always looked very gray, didn't they? All of those metal woods back then.
0: Anyway, 88.
1: 88. So I was half, I I've was halfway some... there. Come on.
0: I've got some more of these for you. Oh gosh. How many Apple iPhones do you reckon there's been?
1: I do know the answer to this. Um my my original guess is actually quite good. Um it's like something like forty three or forty-four or something like that.
0: Yeah, forty two. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: How many majors?
1: Uh,
0: that's just maths. Yeah, it should
1: maths. yeah, it should be, but do you include nineteen ninety three in that as well? I mean, it should be like 120 or something, but
0: it's 119. Yeah. Good effort. Uh, and are this,
1: I won't ask you another one. How many prime ministers have we had in the UK? Oh, my God. Like, counting is not good, but I could actually count them, couldn't I? Shall I count them? Uh, Major, Blair, Brown, Cameron, May, Johnson, Truss, Sunak, eight?
0: Jesus, Steve. That was ge- that was genuinely impressive. That was brilliant. Uh and here's one for you: a pint, the pint, the cost for a pint of lager has gone from one pound fifty-five to four pounds sixty-two.
1: Where is anyone able to get a, a pint for four pounds sixty-two? Not in York, I can tell you. Not in the places I drink. Try six quid. Mm. My
0: mate bought a can of Stella on the way to Old Trafford on Saturday for three quid, which I was pretty impressed by.
1: That is, that is quite good stuff. I did not, because I'm not drinking. And you're looking all the better for it, yeah. Tom. Anyway, so the uh...
0: the um, what I thought we could talk about, given that it's match play season, is a bit of a deep dive into match play. Um, so I've got some, I've got, I've got some problems, really, Steve, with this whole thing.
1: Are you about to say something blasphemous on on radio?
0: Well, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and sort of get get my position clear because I don't want it to be sort of. A binary sort of polemic thing, although that is obviously how it's going to be presented and taken. But I will, I will try.
1: That is, the, that is kind of like the worst. I'm going to say something that lots of people are going to disagree with, but 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 don't hate me. Please hear me out first. It's not.
0: I don't care if people hate me. I just just want them to hate me for the right reasons. <laughs> um. So I'm just, I just don't quite get into. I don't think the whole sort of the Ryder Cup's amazing. It transcends sport, blah 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 blah. Um, I don't really enjoy the sort of pageantry of it. Hannah's come today in her kind of European flag colours. Um, she
1: got a little Union Jack like face painted on.
0: Well, she has fortunately stopped short of face painting. Yeah. Anyway, she wouldn't be wearing a Union Jack, would be, She'd be wearing a European uh, flag.
1: Yeah. I, it's not. It's not. Uh, it's not the Curtis Cup, is it?
0: So if this was kind of talk sport, and what's that guy on talk sport called? I mean, then I'd
1: I mean, like name any of them.
0: <laughs> my, the, then he, the, the guy's got a catchphrase where he says, "I don't think that Harry Kane is all that. I think my opening gambit was would be is the Ryder Cup all that?" and I'll, I will give you some sort of, I'll give you some sort of um, things to chew over. I, don't, I never quite buy that the players are that into it for a start. So this is like uh, this. Is, this is my opening statement, right? So there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of noise made at the time by the players, kind of about how much it means, and when they win, if they win a four ball game, there's a lot of kind of high fiving and back slapping and whooping and hollering and all the rest of it. And I think in the moment they're like pleased to have won their match. I get that. Um. So I'm I'm so I'm not for a minute suggesting that that kind of visceral reaction is disingenuous at all. I think that well, there's quite a lot of stuff around players' behavior at the Ryder, before the Ryder Cup or to do with the Ryder Cup, which kind of tells you how sort of bothered they really are. Um, so if you talk about Roy McIlroy, who we've seen crying at least two Ryder Cups, which again, I think is genuine. So he, in the early part of his career, referred to the Ryder Cup as being a, um, an exhibition match. I think he was in his early 20s when he said it. I'm sure he's changed his mind since, and I don't want to kind of try and pretend I know what Maury McElroy thinks about the Ryder Cup. But he would have got that from somewhere, right? So at the time, he was like, you know, obviously would be influenced in his views by the senior people on tour. And I think it sort of was a kind of a bit of a, he got panned for it at the time, but it was a bit of a tell about actually how it's kind of viewed. And I think over the years, you see things like, people will be trying out a new driver for the first time during Ryder Cup week um, or they might swap putters for the first time in Ryder Cup week. And these are things that they would just never do like ahead of a, ahead of a major. There would always be a period of them trying to sort of bed that in. Um, even this week, like with, with Roy's um, scheduling, like he's off on a stag do this weekend and I don't for a minute think that he's going to turn up like with a massive hangover and sort of play like any of us would do on a Saturday morning. But he wouldn't be going on a stag do in Ibiza the week before the Open, for example, because he'd be treating it more seriously. Although he did once famously break his ankle playing football, that said, before the Open. But you take my point. Um, and then I think that the sort of other thing that I would add into that is like, I, I don't think anyone quite understands like who, it, who it's played between. Like, so if you go back to... So what makes the Premier League, right? Or what makes football in Britain unique is that it's the thing that kind of like is at at its absolute essence is this sort of visceral support of your local team or a team that's meant something to you since you were little for one reason or another because your dad supported them or it was the first football match you went to whatever that whatever it is and that is now what the, the Premier League sort of pedals like across the world. But the thing that underpins it is that is the people going to the match week in, week out, making the atmosphere amazing. The idea that um, local players can still make it into the first team. It's that kind of thing that, that sets it aside. And every time there's anything that tries to franchise Premier League clubs or British clubs, then there's a massive, massive pushback against it. Because... It would it would lose something if we started having Premier League games in America or in the Middle East. Then it would lose something. I mean, it it would become an entertainment sport first and foremost, like NFL or anything else. And I think that I can't get into what the Ryder Cup is. I don't understand who it's between. Like it used to be between Great Britain and Ireland. Even that's a fudge. Great Britain and Ireland's not a thing. Like it that that only exists within the context of the of the Ryder Cup. There's Great Britain and then there's Ireland. We don't compete together anything else. Um, and then we kept getting beat all the time. So to try and make it a contest, it then became between the USA and Europe. And I'm not entirely clear on what the qualifying um terms are for the European team. I think you have to be from Europe and be a member of the European tour. But Europe is not a thing, as in and we're we're not in it anymore. And it's not we don't there's no other place where we compete as Europe so I just don't I don't sort of feel passionate about the European aspect of it and I think that that's distilled even further by the live stuff where we're now watching something which is kind of just it's basically sort of President's Cup levels of things like it's some of the people but it's not all the people um so I think it's and I will get into it obviously because it's a sporting spectacle and hopefully it'll be close on Sunday. And don't get me wrong, like the Battle of Brooklyn, the Miracle of Medina, all the rest of it. These are amazing spectacles. Um, but I just, I just, I guess maybe maybe it's more concerned that the whole thing is like a castle of sand. And I think that for the first time, that's kind of getting exposed.
1: Thank you for that party political broadcast from the Brexit Party. <laughs> well, the Brexit <laughs> like Party? Where's, what, I, where's, where, uh, what, where's, can you bring back Tom? Seem to be having a conversation believe, with Nigel Ferri.
0: You tried I can't believe he tried to straw man me on a Brexit point. It's ridiculous.
1: <laughs> you you set him up, I'll knock him down. Um, uh, I am mas- I am the other side of this debate, as you well know. I'm massively passionate about the Ryder Cup. One of the first my sort of first early moments in my golf life were watching Bernard Langer put slip by. At nineteen ninety one at Keyworth and just being unbelievably transfixed by the whole thing, um, I have Ryder Cup memorabilia coming out of my ears. I've been to three of them. Um, this will be the this will be the first European Ryder Cup I haven't been to since Celtic Manor, um, and I love. I, I I do get massively passionate about it. One of my like worst days in sport was at Brookline when Mark James's team somehow. Um, somehow lost that lead. I remember I was watching it with a load of pals. We got the takeaways in, the beers had been flowing and just feeling completely devastated um, as that one slipped by. Um, I remember, I, we, we talked about earlier, I remember the first tee at Glen Eagles. It was an incredible atmosphere, only surpassed by being in Paris at Le Golf National when Europe won. Not there, the, I, I could still remember the noise. I could still like I could still sort of feel it. It still like sends the hairs up on my neck. Um, the noise when um, Molinari beat Mickelson and it was won. I, I I find it an incredible spectacle. I love it. Um, I love the Solheim Cup in a very similar way. Um, you know, I, I woke up this morning excited to um, be able to watch the Solheim and, and watch some proper golf over the weekend. Some, so it feels to me like it. I don't know. I mean. I understand the exhibition argument. I, I don't think that in the moment those players feel that. I think they get wrapped up in it all. I think we've seen enough emotion. You know, I remember John Rahm like taking down Tiger in 2018. That was not a guy who was thinking, "I'm just playing an exhibition here." This was a guy that was like absolutely mesmerized at, at what he'd managed to achieve. Um, and I think if Europe can win in Rome and beat them again, and for you know keep that cup get it back for a start but keep them from winning I think you'll just see an absolute explosion of emotion from those players so the,
0: I don't disagree I think the, I think that in the moment the players are like very genuine about um, their wins and losses I think that's 100% right I, to your point about um, those kind of child those kind of childhood memories or m- memories from earlier in your uh, what's the word? Your journey—that's what people say, innit? not You on a journey, Steve?
1: It's—it's <laughs> it's starting to feel like it's been a long one. Um, so I think a couple of things with that,
0: like hundred percent, like I'm right there with you about Kiwa. I can—you can still remember so m- many bits of that. Do you remember the and Montgomery game? Uh, Kalkaveki was four up was he? And Monty came back to half, and they both get hit in the water on that par 17th. Um, and that was obviously Ollie and Sevi at their absolute pomp and it was the war on the shore and all the rest of it um so yeah that that what you just said um and that that's that was i guess what got hooked hooked me into golf as a as a thing I guess as you get older you kind of you you kind of see what's behind the curtain a little bit um and you sort of start to think well actually is what I'm watching here kind of like is this as authentic as it gets? I think in defense of 15-year-old Steve and Tom, I think at the time it probably was because the sort of essence of that, like the, the Ryder Cup has been this sort of amorphous thing, then it has changed like from being GBI and and Europe and it may well change again, right? Because it probably will have to do. So if you think about the state of the European tour at that time, so we're talking like late 80s, early 90s, and I guess through the 90s, the, the types of play that we're talking about, Woosnam, Valdo, Oli, Sevy, yeah, they were international golfers, and yeah, some of them played split schedules, but they were playing the most of their golf, they were playing in Europe on the European Tour. And if you sort of think about people like, like European tour, stalwarts, stalwarts of the time, like people like Ken Brown, who played obviously three or four Ryder Cups through that period, the, 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 what they were trying to do is stick it to the man. Like the PGA Tour was this sort of all-dominating, all the best players in the world playing on the PGA Tour. We were going over there three times a year for majors and once every other year, once every four years for Ryder Cups. Um, And we were kind of in, it was like the big brother, little brother stuff. And the European Tour was punching above its weight and the kind of essence of it was that it was amazing. We're sticking it to this like global superpower, America. And I think that that, and it, it was the same as so much stuff at that time is that America dominated everything, America dominated the Olympics, and America dominated sport full stop. So any, any chance there was to stick it to America was like a huge thing. Um, and in, to bring it back to golf, sorry, I think the sort of the battle at that point was very much seen as it's the European Tour versus the PGA Tour, right? And whether that's what it is or what it was is, is not is, doesn't really matter. That's what it felt like felt like it was the, the best players that we were familiar with seeing with it, week in, week out who were playing their golf here versus the people who are playing golf there. And that has got an element of tribalism to it. And that has got an element of kind of um, uh, the, 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 the the kind of essence of stuff that you need in sport to make it matter. And I just think that as time's gone on, that's been diluted and now most of our best players live overseas they play full-time PGA tour schedules um so I'm, I'm, I think what we're watching now is something more akin to like a kind of a member guest where yeah of course you want to win or a sort of an inter-club match where I don't know Isleworth is playing against uh wherever else the Bears club and it's kind of like it's lovely and it's like great Bants and all the rest of it and I'm sure Raws really wants to stick it to Brooks but He's doing it for himself. He's not doing it for Europe in inverted commerce.
1: The Ryder Cup is a member's guest. There's a there's a headline <laughs> for everyone. Um,
0: this is just absolutely like I hate the I hate the fact you're thinking that's good. I can use that. I, use
1: that. <laughs> uh, I don't know about 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 that with the Ryder Cup. Um, I accept the point. Um, I do feel something akin to that. Um, with the Solheim Cup um, because the Europe and the USA are not the power in women's golf, are they? Um, you know, they're not. So th- th- it does feel to me like th- 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 there needs to be a kind of match play tournament that includes um, the Far East, for example, because that's that's where golf superpowers are. You know, that's where the best, that's where the, the, the predominant major winners are. And it does feel to me a little bit like Europe in the USA is a reflection of how things might have been sort of 30 years ago, rather than actually, um, a, a, you know, a measure of, of of the state of women's golf now. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I mean, look, we, we, we talked earlier on, I did a history degree, Tom. <laughs> I'm sort of mired in the past and I do celebrate it. Um, and there is just something there is just something in the Solheim as well as the Ryder cup about about a sort of cross continents battle that just excites me is that enough well let's get on to match play now because I, I i feel well, i feel that we're, we're a club podcast so i feel that this conversation's been leading to a wider point
0: so i've trying to i've been trying i guess i'm trying to sort of sort of contextualize it and say like okay we this is a club golf podcast and we're all club golfers who are going to be tuned into these things because they quote transcend golf and the general sports fans are going to tune in for the first time and we're all going to be glued to it. And 19th holes on Sunday afternoon will be full of people watching the um singles. Um and it, so to that degree, like it it is incredible. Um and I wonder whether it sort of leans into a, a sort of wider thing for me. It's that the match play full stop is just a bit it, I just, I just can never, ever take it seriously, and like this is very much at odds with um, my general sort of views, which I do think are sort of quite traditional. like, I'm really into foursomes, for example, or alternate stroke, as someone said, it should be rebadged permanently. No. <laughs> um, but the the problem with match play is that it's like I think it's another attempt to sort of take what works in another sport and apply it to golf. Like it's like it's mano versus mano one versus one. um, And it's kind of what it's, what happens on that particular day that um, dictates whether you succeed or fail. I think one of the great things about stroke play golf is that it's kind of, it's a cumulative kind of an attritional effort. And that's what golf is, right? It's how efficiently can you get around 18 holes? Like it's, is that that is the length of the course we're adding up our scores to the 18 holes the individual holes don't matter how many times do you speak to a psychologist or do you tell yourself like the power of a hole is irrelevant because it's just one hole your job is to get the ball round 18 holes in the fewest stroke possible that's what golf is and by dividing it up into 18 individual matches you're adding a sort of streakiness and you, you're taking away the kind of value of consistency and. Um, longevity and stuff which is absolutely one of the essences of the game right
1: so there are golf historians all over the world spitting out their tea because at at yeah, I, I the go, golf yeah. is a match play game i mean golf historically is a match play game you know stroke play um, is a relatively modern invention um compared with match play golf i mean if you think about you know the, the sort of first golden era of golf it's sort of I mean, the first sort of highly publicized golden era of golf. So I'm talking sort of Tom Morris v. You know, Tom Morris and, you know, the, the, um, the, uh, I can't remember who I'm talking about now. You know, Willie Park. Willie Park thank you. God, I had a brain freeze there. Uh, Tom Morris, old Tom and young Tom and the Parks, you know, and going back into the Andersons as well and all of those open champions. I mean, the, 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 the excitement that was created around them was around match play golf. Uh, now I understand that there was a monetary element about that. You know, it was about cash. But those grand matches, you know, that people were betting on, and those purses that golfers were winning, um, was was what essentially drove the first massive era of the sport. And that is that is around match play, not stroke play. I suppose you're going to argue that golf really takes off in England because of the Open Championship, which is a stroke play event, but.
0: Well, I'm going to what I'm going to argue is that I think that your sort of historical point, like sort of feeds into my point, that those matches between the Musselburgh Golf Club or the the golfers of um, the Royal Company of Edinburgh golfers or Berwick versus St Andrews, those were exhibition games. That was the best golfer from the town of St Andrews traveling to North Berwick to play against the best golfer from north berwick so the gentlemen of the club could bet on it and win money on it and right enough the um the professional golfer also won money but it was a, it was an exhibition game for the entertainment of the masses right that's what it was but it was
1: also but that didn't mean that it didn't mean anything um because they were sources of local pride there wasn't just cash right. on the line it was it was about prestige it was about it was about that, but that doesn't mean that match player doesn't matter. That doesn't mean that the Ryder Cup doesn't matter or the Solheim Cup doesn't matter.
0: No, but you, you you're basically saying what I'm saying. This is the the, the essence of that was to entertain gentlemen and give gentlemen something to bet on. And it but it, for those people, it was our best guy versus your best guy, right? An hour was very clear because it was people from St Andrews versus people from North Berwick. But,
1: I mean, you could take that argument and you could you could show it across all kinds of other sports, especially nineteenth-century sports. You know, boxing. Our guy, our best guy, against their best guy. You know, football. Our our mill town against these you know, amateur idiots from down south. You know, I mean, there's the, all all of sport is, is is formed like that, isn't it?
0: But that's what football still is. That's what makes it amazing.
1: Yeah, that's what makes the Ryder Cup
0: amazing. But the Ryder Cup isn't that, is it? That's what I'm just saying. I think, like I, th- I
1: think it is. I think it still is, you know. I think I think it still is our 12 best against your 12 best. And I think, you know, take the Ryder Cup Guardians out of it, right? Because Chiv's written about them this week and you can read it on our website and a lot of the stuff that he says is correct. But the general spectator, because I know, because I stood amongst them in enough of these things, still feels... the as passionate about it, and still feels as as euphoric about it when they win, and as disconsolate when they lose, and it still matters to them. And as a result, it matters to those golfers as well. I think.
0: Well, I think it would if it was, um, it's the PGA Tour versus the European Tour, and you were making a choice between whether you pl- you were a PGA Tour player or whether you're a European Tour player, and I think that. When people were t- talking about Live two years ago, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if you ended up with a Live versus the PGA Tour? That would be unbelievable because they are two separate entities, and you can't play on both. But just,
1: so that just feels that's got. I just feel sorry for poor old Monty here, whose career you're essentially dismantling.
0: I'm not dismantling it. Because this is stop trying to make it. Stop trying to make me sound like a polemist because I'm saying that in Monty's era, I feel like it meant something. Because it was more like that. It was more like the European Tour
1: versus the PGA Tour. And now it's i mean, not by the end, it wasn't. Not by not by the not by the time that that Monty had finished. I mean, like a lot, a lot of the top players were playing on the on the PGA Tour. Then I mean,
0: and then so I think, so I think what. I, t- I take your history lesson. Thank you for that. I'm not patronised by it at all. I think I probably added just about enough old names to kind of get through that. I know
1: that. you saved me as well. Thank you. <laughs>
0: um, so the, I think that what's happening to match play golf at club level is quite reductive. So I don't know. Do I want to talk about personal experiences? Probably. Um, so our golf club, we have... Um, we have the scratch knockout, and we have the thirty-six hole scratch. Um, we have the thirty-six hole scratch medal, and I would, you, Old Woodley is like a pretty old school, boys well, very old school club. And I would say that it, those two things are just about equal in terms of status. But I think that is that has evolved. And when I first joined, sort of twelve or thirteen years ago, the scratch knockout, the match play event, was way, way, way more significant than winning what was is, is broadly termed the blue team medal. I would say that's different from the club that I grew up at, where you were trying to win um, the club championship, the 36-hole medal event, and that was always regarded as the thing with, with, that had the most status. What's also evolved since I started playing is the handicap system. So we've gone from, um, I think, a scenario where the handicap system was in place, so if people of different abilities wanted to play against each other, they could do, um, but it most competitions still favoured the lower handicap. And I think that that is um, match play is a very illustrative way to talk about that because the, the, the way the handicap system has changed so much over that sort of 30-year period. So when I was a kid, it was 75% of difference, three-quarters of difference. We used to talk in quarters and things like that, not percentages. Um, and broadly speaking, that was viewed as being advantageous to the lower mark, right? and now we've evolved to 90 or 95% of the difference but at the same time the um, handicap calculation has tra- changed um with the um course rating and slope differential massively favoring the high handicapper so the two the two things in step i think have made meant that match play knockouts at club level are very much designed to kind of encourage high handicappers and give high handicappers more chance. And I think that that just sort of dumbs the whole thing down even further.
1: So, yeah, I I take your point when it comes to club match play entirely. I used to be massively enthusiastic about match play when I was um, first joining golf clubs, probably because I had a high handicap um, and I used to do quite well in them. Um, As my handicap has lowered, I've become... Less and less enamored with match play, but usually because I'm getting a beating handed to me. Now, you can say that's sour grapes, and I would accept that. Um, you know, no one likes to lose, and no one likes to get pounded eight and six by you know, sort of 27 handicapper. Um, but I think your point about um allowances and the way that they uh, have changed is a really interesting one, actually, because I do feel like there is now in the bid for parity uh, in competition, um, there is a possibility that we've gone too far the other way. And that I, I do think that, like in a lot of things now in golf competitions, I do feel that higher handicappers have got a profound advantage. I, I don't think that's a contentious statement. I don't think that has to be a ridicule of WHS or match play formats. I just think that, you know we've got lots more people playing the game now. The average handicap, I think, in England is something like seventeen. I want to say for men, and twenty-seven for women. So the, the vast majority of players, the significant majority of players, are probably you would class in the high handicap range. So it's obvious that they're going to um, they're going to win more competitions than low handicappers statistically because there is more of them. Having said that, I I did like seventy-five percent. I did like it. Um, because I, and I and I say this as someone who won at match play competitions when seventy five percent was in, because you still, if you were still good enough on the day, you still had more than enough shots. You still had plenty of shots in hand. That was the point. Particularly if you were playing in four balls, um, where there were two of you, two of you together. But foursomes is a completely different beast entirely with the with the pressure. But four ball, where you know your partner can get you out of jail. Um you still had plenty of shots in hand. Now I sort of feel with ninety percent that if you get there's there is no pressure on the high handicapper anymore with with ninety percent because they they get so many more shots compared to how they used to that if one of them messes up, their other partner can still do it can can still that there is not the kind of uh, I like to think with match play there's like a rolling momentum pressure builds right throughout a match. Um, and then then and then eventually someone cracks and i and I thought that with with seventy five percent that was that there was there was a kind of straight line effect to that, but I don't think that is the case now. I think that ninety percent really favors the players with more shot there's less pressure on them um it's easier for them to dovetail because the psychological advantage of having more shots um is, pre- is prevalent then you, when you consider that with single figure players low handicap players for example you know the psychological thing of jesus i've got to give all these shots away today like how on earth am i going to do that now you could argue that's a mental problem get over it yourselves you know have a bit more backbone but but it, it definitely didn't feel the same way with 75 percent you know, you, you were always still giving lots of shots away then, but it didn't feel like the massive mammoth thing. I played, um, I played uh, a guy uh, with a partner with my partner. We played in a four ball, um, and I think he was getting something like um, seventeen or eighteen shots this day. And he, we, we, they beat us in 15 holes. And I think we tallied up their, his score. We tallied up his score. And I think he'd gone round. Give me plus or minus one or two here. Um, but I think he'd gone round in plus three for, for right. 15 holes or 15. Now, that's possible, right? Like, everyone's allowed to have a good day. I'm not saying this guy was a bandit or anything like that. But I'm saying that 90%, a partner who was steady, Two other players who were giving away lots and lots of shots because the handicap allowance is set up that way in four ball. It just gave them the confidence to go and to go and do the job, and fair play to them. And we see this in other aspects now. You know, I I, I, go, I keep going back to this research from how did I do um, that? That came out maybe at the start of the year um, that shows how WHS has changed in terms of stablefords. Now pre WHS, um, the cat one player. Was the one that got the most points, and and by some considerable margin, actually as well. It was something like I think it was something like two points, and the 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 how did I do research had shown that that had flipped on its head and the category 4 player was now getting the most points now the argument of that research was that all the numbers had been equalized so instead of the cat 1 players getting say 32 points and the cat 4 players getting 29 points the cat 4 player was getting 32 and the cat 1 player was getting 31 and that was argued as being um showing that the, the WHS and the handicap system was working because there was more parity now between the scores I took an alternate view I looked at it and said there is no way that the category 4 player should be dominating WHS in a fair system because they are the most erratic and they are the most you know that their scores should be the ones that are going wider the low handicap player who is consistent who puts in a steady score all the way through should always be close to the top because statistically there's fewer points on the graph for them to vary and so in a long-winded way apologies for banging on for two or three minutes in a long-winded way what i'm trying to say is i think that we've gone too far now the other way with handicaps in a bid to sort of help low hand help high handicappers get parity and make them more competitive in competitions (laughs) we're essentially like sweeping aside the rest of golfers and the reality if i can be blunt for high handicappers who want to compete in competitions should be get better at golf
0: yeah 100% but i
1: i think i think it,
0: we've i think we've kicked this around loads of times and sort of ended up on the fence and um we're desperately trying to fall on the side of kind of um we should be encouraging new people into the game and all the rest of it it's not so much about that it's about people who are sort of members of golf clubs already been able to enjoy their golf. And I think that this, this sort of the way the system is at the moment means there's quite a lot of people who can't enjoy their golfers because they're not. it's not a level playing field. And that, sorry, Tom. I, 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 I think also that...
1: think, Tom, sorry to interrupt, but I also think, Tom, that the, the, um, the attitude now of the average golfer, I've noticed has shifted. Um, you know, when I started, God, I'm going to sound like old man here, um, but when I started, the aspiration was to get better. You know, like mm. I couldn't enter certain competitions off the handicap that i started on i started on 24 i wasn't allowed to enter competitions right there there were events that there were not available to me because i was too high i couldn't enter union competitions for example i think now the issue has become it's not necessarily about can i get better it's can i win cups and can i win money off this mark and if i can then what is the incentive for me to get better because as i get better i'm not going to win as much
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, a little bit of that has got to be to do with your age profile, right? In that you were sort of young and desperate to improve, and so were your peer group, and now there's the motivations are slightly different. But yeah, I take your point. I think that I think that there's a softening around the edges of the whole thing. Um, I think that the point you make about the the sort of there's much less pressure now because when you play a, a four ball game, particularly because there's so many shots that even if someone's having a bad day, there's plenty there to pick up the pieces. Um, I would say that that's one of the reasons you sort of lean into foursomes, where bad golf is more exposed and you'd have much more confidence that in a in a foursomes game that the better pair would win. Um, although I still think that there's there's an argument that the, the softening of the handicap is even feeding into that. Like I think of my own personal experience it's this summer where I lost a mixed foursomes playing with Hannah. Right, we didn't have an amazing day, but we were there or thereabouts. Our handicap, uh, and one of the other pair had like literally they would say themselves one of the worst days of their life, and they still beat us because they, we were giving them more than a shot a hole. And that you can't, you, you can't, you can't really compete with that in match play because one hole is worth as the same as the next one. You can compete with that in stroke play because. Someone might have 14 on a hole or not complete a hole. So that bad golf is exposed. So I think that all of that sort of leans into this view that I've got that match play is just difficult to love at the moment because well, because of what we've described, because it just seems to be something that is very, very, very difficult to compete at when you, if you're playing someone off a high handicap, which I broadly speaking am. I think that there's that is a feeling that we see quite a lot on social media, Um, so yeah, maybe that's part of my uh, my Ryder Cup issues. But um, it does um, it does sort of lead us on to our our sort of final point about that we've seen doing the rounds on our website and on on social this week about uh, I guess the what's the word the provenance of people's handicaps. Um, So Lou Stagner tweeted. I think he tweeted. He likes tweeting. He's basically completed Twitter, hasn't he? He's absolutely amazing at it.
1: He's, he's incredible. And um, he has managed to get the associated thick skin as well, which some of us have never have, never really managed. But he, he's a great follower because he comes up with some really good stuff that just makes you think. You might not necessarily agree with it all the time, but it provokes debate. And he posted a tweet um, earlier this week where he said, uh, you should be able to post rounds when playing by yourself. If someone wants to be dishonest about their handicap, this rule, does nothing to stop them. By this rule, he means the rule of handicapping. They will find a way, he says. They always do. This rule only hurts honest players. It needs to change. So before we get into a discussion about this, there has to be a caveat in that um, Lou is talking largely from um, the perspective of American golf, uh, where posting rounds solo used to be a thing. You used to be able to do it. I think I think you could do it up until about 2016. Then the USGA, knowing that I think that there was going to be WHS kind of closed off the uh, the possibility for people to do it. But for, but, um, for years and years and years, people could post rounds solo to the to gin or to the gin app or to however they did it. And then obviously that was altered. Um, you, we, you saw some very different comments depending on where you looked. So if you look at Lou Stagner's Twitter, um, he's primarily talking to an American audience, I think. I don't think that's unfair to say. It's quite a measured debate, actually. There's a lot of people who didn't even realize they weren't allowed to post rounds solo Um instead that they still did it, which says something quite interesting, I think about how the gin app is works and the relationship between people who are playing together in, in that form of golf. And then I wrote a story about this, this, um, this tweet said, I wouldn't sit on the fence and then largely sat on the fence, (laughs) 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 which I'm, I'm not very, I'm not very proud of that now, but anyway, this, this piece went up on, um, on our social media, um, where the culture of GB and I golf is very different where we've, um, where, you know, I mean, it, it, it seems like if you suggest that someone plays around on their own and then scores it, everyone was going to cheat. Um, the social reaction was very different and, and, and a little hostile, actually. And people just going, no, you should never be able to do this. So I, I, I did think that um, it said something interesting about the cultural divide of golf between GB and I and the USA, which leads into some of the problems I think people over here have with WHS, which we discussed before in some detail i'm not saying we need to go over that again but um i yeah as i said tom i said i wouldn't sit in the fence and then i sat on the fence um my personal view is that we should probably give this stuff a try over here because it would free up quite a lot of um possibility for people to put scores in i've argued many many times that people who just going want to cheat are just going to there's little you can do to stop them um, in the act. You can catch them afterwards. Obviously, there are various mechanisms within WHS that allow you to do that. But you know, the fact that you have to have a partner verify your score does not mean that people aren't going to cheat. There are plenty of examples of people trying to cheat the system um, by either having a partner who falsely verified a score, or as as England Golf have, have have said in some of their seminars, you know, people trying to sort of verify scores in another side of the country to the to the part where the person was playing and so golf is built isn't it on integrity and honesty we keep saying this and it, but if you're going to keep saying that then you have to allow people the opportunity to use their integrity and their honesty and if you're going to do that then what difference does it make if you post a score solo or not but it would but it'll never fly here it would never happen over here because people would get too upset and whoever comes forward and suggests it is going to get hounded out so do you,
0: do you think the venn diagram of people who don't think you should be able to, don't think you should be able to post around playing on your own is identical to the, the people who think that general play scores are a nonsense
1: yes i would largely say so yeah but but i think this i mean it's like the old cons- it's, these are the kind of whs conspiracy theorists i think who 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 think that everything about that system is set up for people to cheat um, a I, charter, yeah, as, 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 the, as they keep calling it, and can't accept that there are uh, any parts of it that are actually worthwhile and, and and valued at all because people are just cheating, and it's always because I can't win a competition, so therefore everyone else must be must be cheating, and you you can't debate people like that who have that view. But it's, I just think it's, it, it's
0: I think it's intell- intellectually sort of stimulating on lots of levels. So I think there's the one thing where. See, I I think there'd probably be fewer people who would be opposed to general play scores as there would be people playing on their own, or their their opposition would be less fervent. Would should we say?
1: Hmm.
0: So I think the, the more people would be accepting that general play scores were okay, and there were a way of people getting more cards in, and this sort of the view on that would be softer. But in actual fact, being able to submit a card on your own should be no different, should it? So it's, it, I, I like, I like it when debates go in that direction because it makes you think, well, actually that is the direction of travel. So why would you not then sort of extend it to um, games when you play on your own? The second thing I think is that everyone involved with golf would like to say it is a game of honor and, um, cheating is the absolute worst thing you can do and all the rest of it. Um, yet we're basically obsessed with trying to catch people out for cheating. So people must think that it's rife, and there must be an element of that sort of be kind of looking at themselves type of thing. Because it, why would you be so opposed to someone submitting a score on their own if when you submitted a score on your own, you did it honestly?
1: It's all whispers as well. Everyone's heard of some mate who's done something, and but then when you actually ask, well, what did you do about this? Everyone goes, oh, I didn't do anything about it. Golf is obsessed with with the tiny minority or not golf clubs and club golfers are obsessed with the tiny minority of people um, that cheat. They see enemies everywhere when actually there aren't the vast, I've played with God, like how many golfers do I think I've played with throughout my time as a golfer that's stretching more than 30 years. I can't even count on one hand the number of people that I've suspected, or or thought were cheat were cheats, you know. I mean, it's not even. It's not. It doesn't number up to five. Um, in more than thirty years, and I've, I must have played with thousands of golfers through the years in various competitions, in various events. The vast majority of people play the game as it's meant to be played. But we, we stop doing things at golf clubs. We don't bring in policies that might help the general population of golfers i'm talking specifically about local rules here where i'm often accosted sorry asked um by by members you know could could my club bring in this local rule well yeah they could but they probably won't because they'll say what lots of clubs say when they're approached about local rules or people will take the mickey, so we can't do this we can't we can't sort out this particular thing because these golfers might cheat well so what so so what if they cheat Catch them, deal with them, get rid of them. But
0: it's, it's it, it is lowest lowest common denominator stuff. So there's kind of one thing. So there's there's the we kind of there's this uproar because pe- quote people will cheat. Why are people bothered about people cheating? They're bothered because they might come up against them in a open competition where you can win a holiday, or you might they might come up against them in the club match play, or they might come up, they might keep losing their monthly medal to them that's why they're bothered so but the the whole the point of the handicap system I think or what what certainly what I think is the new narrative around it is that it's supposed to be a, w- a way of you tracking your progress right so it's you being able to say well I wasn't 18 and now I'm a 12 I'm getting better rather than that being a kind of like ethereal thing where you sort of feel like you're getting better but you've got no way of measuring it and it's just the same way that we measure ourselves at running by our pace per kilometer, or what uh, what Strava's telling us that our time was for that route this time two months ago. We've got a way of tracking our process pro- progress. But when I go and if I go and then enter a, the local 10k, I can't cheat that because I just run, do the run. Although I did once cheat actually in the Weatherby 10k because there was a bit at the end where you had to sort of run up and then run back again, and I just turned left and missed that bit out because I was too hot but I did go and tell the organisers to not count my time.
1: Well, you didn't cheat then, did you?
0: <laughs> I thought I was going to die,
1: actually. Because you went and told the organisers. But I think you, what you've stumbled upon there is that the nub of the argument is that I, I agree with you entirely that I think WHS almost works in that sort of Strava way of, right, here's how quickly I've run today. Can I beat my PB the next time? It is essentially a tracking device of ability. Um And that's why it works particularly well, I think, in the United States, where competition play is much less pronounced. Um, But when you've got a culture in GB&I where handicaps have primarily been used as a vehicle for entering competitions and not as much as a measure of ability, it's this is the mark you'll play off in our event. Then, the, then it doesn't work. It doesn't work properly because it's, it's not the aim of the system. And I do think that's where this cultural divide... I think... Uh, I, know, I know James listens, James Luke, England Golf's head of handicapping. Um, he probably gets sick of me name-dropping him in this podcast. But I think that's what he was talking about earlier this year when, when we had a chat with him and he was saying handicaps in GB&I, handicaps in England are about ego. Then they're not about... This is how this is how good you are at golf. This, when I say they're about ego, what I mean is, is how how people perceive handicaps, not the handicaps actually are. That, um, but they're about they're not about this is what your ability is, and this is how far you need to improve, or this is how you track your handicap over the last twenty rounds. It's about right. I'm off thirteen, so can I win a competition or not? And, and I'm as guilty as. Of that, as anyone else, because I've just shot 278s where I basically stepped on the course and went, Wow, I've got a lot of shots today. I am am the absolute embodiment of that, Guilty, guilty as charged. But until we change that culture of handicaps are for competitions or handicaps are a measure of your ability as a golfer over a period of time, then we'll always have this conflict within WHS over here.
0: Yeah. Not, to know about the ego thing it probably is I guess um, but I mean there's, there's, there's ego in, in all sporting endeavour isn't there so as much as like if you're an amateur runner that you sort of realise you're never going to be kipchoge you still want to sort of be faster than your mate right um strava's unbelievable at telling you that that this is how fast you are and compared to other people who are as fat as you or as old as you but but, but um, that's
1: just a straight measure of ability it's a fair it's, it's a quite, fair fight um you're either you're either faster than you're than you're the, the other runner or you're not whereas obviously with a handicap system in competitions what we try and do is get everyone in a straight line to the finish don't we
0: it's quite a comforting thing to know that you're not quite as rubbish at running as you thought when compared to other people who are obese and in their late forties. Anyway, the, um, the 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 point that relates to golf, I think, is that it, it 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 does totally depend on what what purpose is the handicap system serving, and like this this is again something that I've got a very unpopular view on. Is that I think it's just a really unhelpful system because i want to i if i want to track my progress right i don't need to i don't need someone to tell me what my handicap is i just need somewhere to put my scores in and i can say and i can see a graph that says your average last month was 85 and now your average this month is 82 and you can if you want you can say relative to the par of the course or relative to the difficulty of the course So in Strava, again, you have a thing called your GAP, which is your grade-adjusted pace. So if you run somewhere particularly hilly, then it says, well, actually, it looks like you're really slow, but you weren't because you're just running somewhere really hilly. And that kind of measure, I guess, is relevant in golf. I don't think it needs a number attached to it.
1: But it's essentially what slope does. Yeah. You know, course rating and slope, because the two are together. But that's essentially what course rating and slope do, isn't it? They assess the difficulty of the golf course opposed to – I mean, it's essentially – the. The same argument, isn't it? Here's, so here's if, some here's some the, hills. If,
0: if the question is, should players golfers be allowed to submit um, scores for handicap in inverted commas when playing on their own? If if the idea of a handicap is to measure people's progress, they 100 percent should. Why shouldn't they? Because they are literally, to coin the oldest phrase in the book, only cheating themselves, right? So if I want to drive around in my car to get a driver time, I can do. But I mean, what's the point? Um, so that's. That's one thing. If if that um, handicap is like enabling me to win a competition, and again, to continue the sort of athletic anal- analogy or comparison, there are certain marathons that you can get in by running a particular qualifying time, and you have to demonstrate that, right? But you have to do that under competition conditions. Um, so if you want to get into Boston age 50 without going through the ballot or maybe full stop, you have to run a 330, I think, And to get into the London Marathon um, without going through the ballot, to basically be deemed elite, you have to run a sub-115 half. So there's, there's qualifying criteria to this that you have to do under competition conditions. So golf does have this within its gift. And I think that James Luke has said this, that if you're a competition secretary or the person responsible for competition entries at your golf club, you can say... Right, we've looked at your handicap record, and you can't win a competition until you've got six competition counting rounds, not just any old counting rounds. If that, if you're so minded, right? So, I think that, I think that that is the answer to the question: is your handicap index is a measure of your progress? What gets you into a competition or means you can win a competition? That's a totally different thing.
1: Yeah, and that that that's the paradox, I think, isn't it? That that. And that's the difference in culture that I talked about earlier, that I think the handicap system is one thing, but we see it as another because of our deep held traditions of, right, this is what we use to play in a comp.
0: Well, we do. But what I'm saying is that if it was a referendum, there'd be a sort of follow-up question. Should players be able to put scores counting for handicap in when playing on their own? Yes. Should those players be able to win the club major 36-hole trophy of the year if they've only submitted rounds playing on their own. No.
1: yeah I mean, I I do think that, um, and I wrote this in in, in the piece about uh, Lou's tweet, Um, when you are, one of the things, I'm obviously putting in every general player score. I'm putting in every score I play until the end of October. Um, And so I think I'm up to 17 now. You definitely, the the line between general play and competition when you do that all the time definitely blurs. Um, Yeah. You know, I I don't see them, I don't see social round competition like like I used to. They're just one and the same thing to me. I can get a bit more adrenaline down the stretch of a comp if I'm sort of in contention or I feel like I'm in contention, but I don't, I'm not treating the scores any differently in my mind. Now, that has, as as we've talked about, has delivered another issue about whether I actually want every score to count or not, or whether I just want to have a knockabout on my own. Sometimes the answer to that is I do want to have a knockabout sometimes. Um, but um, the the argument that people have that general play golf and competition golf can't be the same thing. Um, I, I my personal experience of that is it's not true. Um, you do when you, when you're putting every score in, you do sort of just get to a point where they're all the same thing.
0: Yeah, I think we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and I think I think that's got to be good for your individual golf. To be honest with you, to take the heat out of competitions a little bit. Um, that was really good. I mean, I'm very concerned about what you're going to do to me in terms of headlines and social media captions. I think please be uh, kind.
1: The the, the the problem is, uh, so I should say that we we normally write something um, from our podcasts uh, in, it, primarily as a vehicle to. Uh, get debate going, but also as a way to promote our podcast. Please subscribe. Um, uh, unfortunately for you, Tom, although I, I, although I think a, a sort of headline with I hate the Ryder Cup uh, might do quite well, um, I fear that I have outdone myself by basically talking in the way I did about handicaps. That's good. I mean, if I think what I'm,
0: I'm worried about the Ryder Cup, right? That's what I'm saying.
1: I I think it's in good hands. Don't worry. Just enjoy Europe winning again in Rome.
0: Right. There we go. Enjoy the sunshine, everyone. Enjoy this festival of match play golf. Hope we haven't totally ruined it for you. Uh, Please subscribe to us on Apple or Android or wherever you get your podcasts. It massively helps our listens. Uh, And see you next week. Cheers, Tom. Bye, Steve.